The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 132, a song of ascents. Lord, remember David and all his afflictions, how he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob, surely I will not go into the chamber of my house or go up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard it in Ephratah. We found it in the fields of the woods. Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness and let your saints shout for joy. For your servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed. The Lord has sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony, which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forever. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation and her saints shall shout aloud for joy. There I will make the horn of David grow. I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. All right, we're, in, we're finishing Numbers 19 today. I mean, just this is such a marvelous passage of Scripture. I, if you uh, were here for the first half of it, you know how wonderful the pictures were of the red heifer. And we're getting into the second half today, which is Numbers 19, verses 11 through 22. It's the water of purification. All right. Verse 11, he who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean seven days. He shall purify himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. Whoever touches the body of anyone who has died and does not purify himself defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. That person shall be cut off from Israel. He shall be unclean because the water of purification was not sprinkled on him. His uncleanness is still on him. This is the law when a man dies in a tent. All who come into the tent and all who are in the tent shall be unclean seven days. And every open vessel which has no cover fastened on it is unclean. Whoever in the open field touches one who is slain by a sword or who has died or a bone of a man or a grave shall be unclean seven days. And for an unclean person, they shall take some of the ashes of the heifer burnt for purification from sin and running water shall be put on them in a vessel. A clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water, sprinkle it on the tent and on all the vessels, on the persons who were there or on the one who touched a bone, the slain, the dead or a grave. The clean person shall sprinkle the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. And on the seventh day, he shall purify himself, wash his clothes and bathe in water. 
and at evening he shall be clean. But the man who is unclean and does not purify himself, that person shall be cut off from among the assembly, because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water of purification has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. It shall be a perpetual statute for them. He who sprinkles the water of purification shall wash his clothes, and he who touches the water of purification shall be unclean until evening. Whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and the person who touches it shall be unclean until evening. When considered, as we will do today, the verses are highly confusing and hard to grasp. And so to start us out, I'm going to give an example for us to think about. It is somewhat analogous to what we will look at. Suppose we have to give someone a bath. He's really dirty. And he also can't bathe himself. Let's even suppose he is so dirty that if we don't wash him, he will die. Something on him really has to go. And so we get some soap. We fill a tub, we put him in, and rub-a-dub-dub. Are you with me so far? Now the bath is complete. What is clean? You just cleaned the person, so he must be clean, right? What about the soap you used? Is that still clean? It was clean when you started, but not now. Would you separate it from the water and use it again? How about the water? Is that clean? Would you use that again? Maybe for tea at noon? Why did you pull the plug? All that water just went down the drain. And that was a brand new tub and drain, never used before. But now they aren't really clean anymore, are they? What about you? Are you clean? I mean, you just washed a person that was so dirty he would die if you didn't wash him. Now you've given him a bath. Would you have a meal before washing your hands again? Why not? Aren't they clean? And is he really clean? Whatever you have on your hands is still on him, isn't it? Is his skin impervious to whatever you have on your hands that you need to go wash off? And what about the tub? What is that ring that's visible there on the tub? Our text verse comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last, Adam, became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural. And afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of the dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Christ bore the image of Adam, but he wasn't in Adam as we are. However, under the law, he was considered a man. What does that have to do with taking a bath? Well, how is it that someone who is so dirty that he must have a bath, and then he is given the bath to make him clean, and yet afterwards when he is considered clean, everything, including him, is still actually kind of unclean? Now, this isn't a perfect analogy, but it conveys the point that needs to be conveyed for the passage. There is defilement, the defilement is removed, and yet there remains a state of uncleanness not only in the one who is cleansed, but in the person who did the cleansing, and in everything associated with that cleansing. I will bet $50 that nobody here would go to that drain, which was used only one time, take it apart, and use it for a straw to prove that I was wrong. In this passage, everything in the process of cleansing brings about its own stain. And yet, in the evening, 
meaning at the beginning of a new day, everything is declared clean. Confused? Hold on to your seats and bear with my occasional stutters and other linguistic foibles, and we will find out that it all has to do with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm. Certainly great things are to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have only two thoughts for you today. The first is the law of death. It's verses 11 through 16. Now, before I give you our first verse, aren't you kind of grossed out about what I gave as an example? I'm going to tell you what. The state that we exist in is far worse than that bathtub or the drain or anything else associated with it. Verse 11, he who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean seven days. The first 10 verses of the chapter dealt with the obtaining of and preparation of the red heifer to be used for cleansing. Now the specific details concerning what to do with the ashes of the red heifer are given in regards to purification of the people. As can be seen, the details concern defilement through death. Death is the result of sin in one's life. Contact with the dead then brings one into contact with the final result of sin, and thus it makes him unclean. There must be purification from this in order to be restored to a right relationship with God. Without it, the person remains defiled and must be separated from the people of God, among whom is the sanctuary of God. As the sanctuary is symbolic of the place of restored access to paradise and fellowship with God, we can see then right here that death, which results from sin, is something that will keep us separated from God. What is implicit here? Because these things point to Christ's purification is that any person who dies apart from Christ is eternally separated from God. Sin is the problem. Death is the result and separation is the consequence, but Jesus is the cure. Keeping this in mind, we are told in this verse that one who touches the dead body of anyone else is deemed unclean for seven days. The Hebrew says, the death of all body Adam, signifying man. What is important to grasp is that there is no distinction made between a man or a woman, an adult, or a stillborn baby. The corruption exists in all, and it thus once again reveals the biblical truth of inherited sin. Sin comes through man, and all are born of man. Is anybody here born that does not have a father? No, everybody's born through man. That is what we need to remember in this particular lesson. The human is conceived, and the sin is transferred in that conception. David wrote of that in the 51st Psalm, certainly understanding the truth from this very passage. Christ came to correct that state of corruption. Right here, one can look forward to the words of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 42, where it says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. Like our text verse, these words deal with humanity in its corrupt state and what Christ would come to do about it. The Adam in us, the Adam, meaning the man Adam, our humanity is corrupt. Death is the result of that, but the cleansing power of Christ as prefigured in the red heifer described in the last number sermon is given to correct that. In Leviticus 11 verse 24 and elsewhere, 
Touching the carcass of an unclean animal only made a person unclean until evening. Here, however, touching a dead human brought about uncleanness for seven days. Thus he is wholly unclean, seven signifying spiritual perfection, which indicates this. To not be cleansed during this period would then indicate being perfectly defiled. In comparing a human corpse to that of even a vile, unclean animal, it shows our utter corruption because of sin and the vile nature of that before God. The wages of sin is death. One must get that corrected or he is to be cut off as will be seen. Verse 12, he shall purify himself with the water on the third day and on the seventh day, then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day, he will not be clean. This is how the Hebrew seems to read it. It's a little ambiguous. The Greek translation of the Old Testament reads it this way. And the Latin Vulgate, which was translated directly out of original Hebrew manuscripts, also translates it this way. And it is also how verse 19 of this chapter states it. However, let me read you the Darby version. He shall purify himself on the third day and on the seventh day he shall be clean. But if he purify not himself on the third day, then the seventh day he shall not be clean. This is how many translations state it. And so there is either one sprinkling on the third day, which leads to cleansing on the seventh, or there are two sprinklings on the third day and on the seventh day, which then fully cleanse. As the process is typical of Christ's work, the correct answer must be found in an evaluation of that. What becomes obvious here, either way, is that because the red heifer anticipates the purification which is found in Christ, the law could neither conquer death nor purify from it. These are external rituals only, and they have no true power to cleanse. Were it so, one sprinkling would suffice for all time. Rather, as Hebrews says it, Hebrews chapter 10, for the law having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then, would they not have ceased to be offered? For the worshipers, once purified, would have no more consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins." Every time that death occurred, the people who touched that death became unclean. It was a constant reminder to them of the failure of the law to bring them to a state of holiness acceptable to God. Thus, the veil in the temple remained until Christ came to tear it apart and restore us to God, purifying us from every trace of sin. This is seen in the next words, verse 13. Whoever touches the body of anyone who has died and does not purify himself defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. Here, an article is placed before the word Adam. It says, Be'nefesh ha-adam ashur yamut, or the body of the man which has died. This is an obvious reference to the Adam, meaning the man who died in Genesis chapter 3. Again, it looks to the transfer of original sin from Adam to all men. I'll ask you again, is there anybody here that does not have a human father? No, there's not. It is what Paul writes of in Romans chapter 5. Therefore, just as through one man sin entered the world and death through sin, and thus death spread to all men because all sinned. As all are in Adam, all have touched 
the body of the man who has died. What man needs now is the touch of the man, capital M, the man, who did not come through Adam's transfer of sin and in whom is life. Does everybody understand the importance of the virgin birth now? That is the critical point which is being made right here. Without the virgin birth, it means he had a human father and he was corrupt and we are not worshiping God in the right way. That is the importance of that particular doctrine. Here, it specifically said that the reason for the purification is because to not be purified, it then defiles Mishkan Yehovah or the tabernacle of the Lord. The tabernacle of the Lord was seen to have pictured in every single detail the person and work of the Lord. It is he who that edifice anticipated. In Revelation 21, the Mishkan Elohim, or the tabernacle of God, is said to be among men. Here's what it says. Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. It is Christ who provides the purification necessary to return to the presence of God. Without his purification, the tabernacle of the Lord is defiled by the presence of one who is unclean. Such cannot be in a restored paradise. And thus, verse 13 continues, that person shall be cut off from Israel. A person purified is acceptable and does not defile the tabernacle of the Lord. This state of uncleanness, however, for one who fails to be cleansed, excludes that person from the rights and privileges of Israel. That is seen in Revelation 21, verses 7 and 8. He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But the cowardly, unbelieving, abominable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone which is the second death. Verse 13 continues, He shall be unclean because the water of purification was not sprinkled on him. His uncleanness is still on him. I'm going to stop and I'm going to ask you a question which I'm going to answer again later, but I want you to think this through. What is this picturing? What is what we're looking at right now picturing? The purification of? Sin. By who? By Christ. It's the purification of sin by Christ. Does everybody understand what this means? If somebody has rejected Jesus Christ, what does that mean? They remain defiled. Everybody must understand that. I'm going to say it again, but they remain defiled. Verse 13 continues. I'm going to read it again. He shall be unclean because the water of purification was not sprinkled on him. His uncleanness is still on him. There are only two states of man before God. Unclean or clean. There is only one way to go from the first to the second, which is through the cleansing of Christ. That is it. Without this menida, or water of purification, which looks to the cleansing of Jesus Christ, the defilement of the death of Adam, meaning sin, remains. The word used here is not the normal word for sprinkling that is used four other times in this passage. Rather, the word is zarak, a scattering. It is the scattering which is caused by a sprinkling. Does everybody understand you've got what sprinkles, but you have what receives, and that is a scattering, okay? When we were going through the earlier sermons in Leviticus, and they cut the animal's neck, and they bled it out, 
They took the blood and did certain things with it. In some instances, they sprinkled it. That was done by the high priest in the holy place or in the most holy place. But most of the time, they took it and they splashed it against the sides of the altar. That is this word here. One is a sprinkling, the other is a scattering. One is given, one is received. Further, very important, the word is passive. It's not active. If translated more literally, and nobody does this, it would say something like, because the water of purification was not received as a scattering on him. In this, it then looks directly to man's responsibility to receive what Christ has done. Christ does the work, but it is received by us. Christ does the purification. We receive what he does. It is his work alone which accomplished the cleansing. As it is passive, this doesn't mean that we don't call on Christ. The man had to walk up to the one who would sprinkle. However, he stood there and he received the sprinkling. We come to Christ, but we do nothing in the purification process. Rather, we receive what he did. Does everybody get that? Verse 14, this is the law when a man dies in a tent. All who come into the tent and all who are in the tent shall be unclean seven days. This settles the matter concerning when the instructions were received. Everybody says, well, Moses didn't write that. That was written by somebody, you know, 600 years later or something. Absolutely not. It says be'ohel or in a tent. A later writer would have certainly said be'bet or in a house. However, the Israelites are now in tents in the wilderness. What is certain is that this would transfer to a house in the future. Anyone who is in a tent or in a house in the future or who entered that tent or that house in the future where there was a dead body would be unclean seven days. As touching a corpse has already been defined, this means that simply being in the tent, even without having touched the corpse, rendered a person unclean. Simply being in the presence of a corpse in an enclosed area brought defilement. Further, verse 15, and every open vessel which has no cover fastened on it is unclean. In this verse, there are actually two nouns, bracelet and cord. Most translations call the bracelet a cover, and then cord is used as a verb, such as no cover fastened on it. That is more of a paraphrase. The two are actually probably being used in apposition. One identifies the other. In this, it would then say, and every open vessel which has no covering a cord on it is unclean. The idea is that of being sealed off from the very smell of death, which would transmit to the inside of the container. In this is seen the reason for the question to the priests found in Haggai chapter 2. Here's what it says there. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Now ask the priests concerning the law, saying, If one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment, and with the edge he touches bread or stew, wine or oil or any food, will it become holy? Then the priest answered and said, no. And Haggai said, if one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? So the priest answered and said, it shall be unclean. Then Haggai answered and said, so is this people. And so is this nation before me, says the Lord. And so is every work of their hands. And what they offer there is unclean. Holiness does not transfer to the common, making it holy but uncleanness of death does transfer to anything else, even to that which is holy. If the contents of the vessel were exposed, the defilement transferred. Verse 16, whoever in the open field touches one who is slain by a sword or who has died, 
The touching of a corpse is not limited to someone who dies naturally, meaning they died of something which corrupted them and finally took their life, be it age, disease, and so on. Nor was it limited to enclosed areas. Instead, it extended to anyone in an open field and who was even killed in battle or died naturally. The effects remained the same. Of this, the pulpit commentary says this. This would apply especially, it would seem, to the field of battle. But the law must certainly have been relaxed in the case of soldiers. In other words, they're stating that the cleanup crew in a battle would be defiled when gathering and burying the dead. But the soldiers who did the killing were probably exempt. Is this correct? No. We don't even need to leave the book of Numbers to find out. Here's what it says in Numbers 31. And as for you, remain outside the camp seven days. Whoever has killed any person and whoever has touched any slain, Purify yourselves and your captives on the third day and on the seventh day. Purify every garment, every thing made of leather, every thing woven of goat's hair, and everything made of wood. The act of killing another, even while the life is leaving the body, brought about defilement. Death in all, all of its associated forms, and including during battle, brought about uncleanness. Lesson for you all? When you read a commentary, don't take it at face value because they could be wrong. This is done by a commentary, which is very good in some books of the Bible. They have different commentators in the pulpit commentary and they make a comment here and then another translation or a commentary crew does this book of the Bible. They made an error within the same book of the Bible. So what I want you to do is when you listen to Charlie Garrett, I expect you to go and check what I've said because I'm just a guy. I'm giving you a commentary in the form of a sermon. Then when you listen to somebody on YouTube, I would expect you to go and check them out. Don't just believe people at face value. That's how we've gotten all of the trouble that we're in in Christendom today is because people don't check with the source, the word of God. Also, verse 16 continues, or a bone of a man, a dead man's bone itself brought about defilement. This is alluded to in Ezekiel 39 after a whopping battle which is coming soon to a world near you. Here's what it says. They will set apart men regularly employed with the help of a search party to pass through the land and bury those bodies remaining on the ground in order to cleanse it. At the end of seven months, they will make a search. The search party will pass through the land and when anyone sees a man's bone, he shall set up a marker by it till the barriers have buried it in the valley of Hamangog. The name of the city will also be Hamona. Thus, they shall cleanse the land. But it must be remembered that bones eventually degrade, just as the rest of the body, even to the dust itself. Therefore, if thought through logically, the very dust of the earth, which is picked up by the wind and blows about man, must carry defilement. One could truly never know when they had come into contact with such a source of defilement. And thus the state of being unclean permeated everything about the people. And if this is the standard, and it is, then there is a state of total uncleanliness which exists in man. Apart from Jesus Christ, there is nowhere that we can go to truly be free from it. Verse 16 continues, or a grave. There are marked graves and there are unmarked graves. The law makes no distinction between the two. To tread on the grave of a man brought defilement. One could never know when they were actually in violation of this. 
And it is exactly this that Jesus was referring to in words found in Matthew and then in Luke. In Matthew, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And then in the book of Luke, chapter 11, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like graves which are not seen, and the men who walk over them are not aware of them. The Pharisees look to their own righteousness and as examples to others of the way to obtaining righteousness. And yet, Jesus told them that they were both defiled and the source of defilement. It was to be considered the highest insult of all to these self-righteous, arrogant men who shunned God and boasted in self. Unfortunately, because of this, they were in a perpetual state of defilement. However, for the law, such transgressions meant that they, verse 16 continues, shall be unclean seven days. Whether one was aware of his state because of defilement or not, he was defiled. But for those who knew they were, they were to be in a state of separation and considered defiled for seven days. The first man, Adam, became a living being. He was made alive by God on that day. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. From death he is freeing. In him is life and the path to lead our way. However, the spiritual is not first, as we know, but the natural and afterward the spiritual, so we understand. The first man was of the earth. Out of the dust he was made to grow. The second man is the Lord from heaven. He is God's right hand. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, so we trust that we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man, so shall it be. Our second thought today is the water of purification. It's verses 17 through 22. Verse 17, And for an unclean person, they shall take some of the ashes of the heifer burnt for purification from sin. When a person was defiled through death in any of these ways, set procedures were to be followed by first getting some of the ashes. Here the word heifer is inserted. The Hebrew says serafat ha-chatat, or of the burning of the sin. As in other areas, the word sin is used to describe its purpose. We do this when we say we skin an animal. We don't add skin, we remove it. The same is true here. The ashes of the burning of the sin means the ashes of that which was burned for purification from sin. As long as one keeps thinking about Jesus and how he fits into the terminology, the words are understandable and the pictures become obvious. Does everybody remember the verse that says, He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's what's being pictured right here. This is true with the next words. Verse 17 continues, And running water shall be put on them in a vessel. Maim chayim. Waters living, or as we would say it in English, living water. As we saw last week, the ashes of the burning pictured Christ in every way. It was he who gave his life for us, but his death is not the end of the story. In him is found the true living water, which he spoke of in John chapter 4 with the Samaritan woman at the well. And it is he who in an obvious reference to this passage said this to Israel, John chapter 7. 
On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. He reached back to the Old Testament symbolism in order to show us truths about himself and what he would do for those who came to him. Christ had to die for our sins, be glorified through the resurrection and ascension, and then the living water has its effect. One can only drink from Christ if he is purified by Christ. In him is found the true living water. What pictures that continues to be seen in the next verse. Verse 18, a clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water, sprinkle it on the tent, on all the vessels, on the persons who were there, or on the one who touched a bone, the slain, the dead, or a grave. Here it notes a clean person. A priest is not specified, but someone who is clean. Though seemingly a priestly duty, the rite of purification could be accomplished by whoever was clean. As this is looking to the application of living water, meaning the Holy Spirit, mixed with the person and work of Christ, it's a beautiful picture concerning the priestly duty of sharing the gospel. It can be actually accomplished by anyone who is cleansed by Christ. As in verse 6, hyssop is specified. It, in picture, looks to the humbled humanity of Christ. Do you remember last week when I said that the, the cedar was thrown into the fire? Then that pictured the strength of Christ because it's this mighty tree that cannot be moved. And then the hyssop was used because it pictures Christ in his humility. From the cedar to the hyssop, from the strong to the humble. As quoted in the previous sermon, Philippians 2, 5, 2, 8, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled. This is the hyssop right here. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. That is, that is the heart of the gospel message, and it is what is being pictured right here. Only hyssop is allowed because only hyssop fits the typology necessary to see the humility displayed in Christ and to transmit Christ to the unclean soul. Thus, the hyssop, ashes, and living water are united to form a complete picture of Christ's work, his death, his resurrection, and the spirit which proceeds from him. It is sufficient to cleanse all things, just as the water of purification was used to cleanse all of what is again named in this verse, but previously described. Verse 19, the clean person shall sprinkle the unclean on the third day and on the seventh day. This verse clarifies the ambiguous Hebrew, verse 12. The person is to be sprinkled on both the third and the seventh day. As I said earlier, because the process is typical of Christ's work, the reason for two sprinklings must be found in an evaluation of that. For Israel, if the sprinkling actually cleansed, then one sprinkling would suffice, wouldn't it? And if it actually cleansed on the second sprinkling, there would be no need for ever going for a sprinkling again. But it only cleansed until defiled again. Think of King David. He was in battle constantly. He killed people left and right, day and night. He was out there doing his thing. 
And when he wasn't in battle, his soldiers were. And they had to go through this every single time they killed a person in battle. Thus, the law anticipated Christ, and the law is insufficient without the coming of Christ. In Christ, we are cleansed from all sin and all unrighteousness by his work. But if that cleansing took effect in actuality upon our acceptance of him, we would be immediately glorified, wouldn't we? But such is not the case. Somebody has to stay here and pass on this good news. We remain here, and we are still in defiled, corruptible bodies. Does anybody here think they've got their glorified body yet? Because I guarantee if we spent an hour in a hot room together, you would realize I certainly don't, and I would realize you don't. Therefore, the two sprinklings look to what is actual but not realized and that which is actual and realized. Right now, any who are in Christ are actually forgiven, justified, sanctified, and glorified in God's sight. If you don't know that, go read the book of Romans. But until that is actual and realized, we are still awaiting the consummation of what we possess. Thus, one sprinkling is given as the assurance of the cleansing. The second is given for the realization of it. That is seen in the next words. Verse 19 continues. And on the seventh day, he shall purify himself, wash his clothes, and bathe in water, and at evening he shall be clean. The question here is, who is to wash his clothes and bathe in water? The clean person who does the sprinkling becomes unclean in that act, as is seen in verse 21, and so it could be either person who is being spoken of. But probably it is the one being sprinkled, because unlike verse 21, it mentions both washing the clothes and bathing. Thus, we have an allusion to Hebrews 10, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. There is the sprinkling and there is the washing. A clean person sprinkles another with the gospel and the person who hears it responds in receiving the gospel, acting upon it through faith. We are not to rigidly look at the third and seventh days as specific time frames, but rather as specific events. If a person hears the gospel and he responds to it one minute prior to the rapture, he has everything here occur in that one minute. He is sprinkled for salvation. He is sprinkled unto salvation and washed clean all in a moment. The evening in the Bible is the start of a new day. In this, it is the eighth day, the day of new beginnings. In Christ, we shall enter the new day, capital D, that of new beginnings, cleansed and purified in reality. Man, I can't wait for that moment. Verse 20, but the man who is unclean and does not purify himself, that person shall be cut off from among the assembly. The words of this verse are reflective of what is said in Revelation 22, verse 11. He was filthy, let him be filthy still. Purification with the water was mandatory in that one must do it in order to be in right standing with Israel and with God. But it was still a choice one voluntarily made. The very fact that it says, but the man who is unclean and does not purify himself signifies that free will is involved. So much for Calvinism. The people didn't tackle him and force the purification on him and neither did God. Instead, he willfully rejected what was offered. In this, he was to be cut off. Verse 20 continues, because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. 
Here it says, Mikdash Yehovah, the sanctuary of Yehovah. The tabernacle, noted in verse 13, resides within the sanctuary. In defiling the tabernacle, the entire sanctuary is, by extension, defiled by the presence of such a person. And this is because, verse 20 continues, the water of purification has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. I want you to think of every single person that has rejected Jesus Christ in the past 2,000 years, starting with the Jew first, and every person since then. They refused the sprinkling of the water, or they just were never told it. One is active, and they will face the consequences for that decision. One is passive, and we will face the consequences for that decision because we failed to tell people about Jesus Christ, and they didn't hear the message. Either way, those people are separated from God. Again, as in verse 13, the verb is passive. It reads, the water of purification was not received as a scattering on him. The individual was offered Christ, and he refused Christ. Christ's purification was not imparted to him, and he remains unclean. Verse 21, it shall be a perpetual statute for them. Lechukat olam, for ordinance forever. The word olam, or forever, signifies to the vanishing point. In this case, when the covenant is fulfilled in Christ, the shadows of these rituals are ended in Christ. The law has reached its vanishing point. However, the precept is forever as it is fulfilled in Christ. We have all of these pictures and they must be fulfilled. So even though they're fulfilled in Christ, it goes on forever and ever in Christ. What the shadows prefigured is now realized in him forever. Included in this is verse 21 going on. He who sprinkles the water of purification shall wash his clothes, and he who touches the water of purification shall be unclean until evening. Here in this verse, we see that the person who was clean and who sprinkled the person who was unclean in order to cleanse him has his garments which have been rendered unclean. And the person who touched the water of purification, certainly he who prepared it and he who sprinkled it, was rendered unclean until evening even though that same water was used to purify the person who was unclean. But there's yet more. Verse 22 finishes with, Whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and the person who touches it shall be unclean until evening. At this point, all, all involved in the process are unclean. The person who was clean and made the mixture became unclean by touching it while making it. The person who sprinkled the mixture must wash his clothes, implying he is unclean. The person who had the water of purification sprinkled on him remains unclean until evening, both for his initial defilement and certainly because of the water of purification, which makes everything that it touches unclean. As all are unclean, anything they touch becomes unclean, and then anyone who touches that which is unclean through their touch becomes unclean until evening. Again, as in the first half of the passage, it needs to be asked, how can something that cleanses make those who touch it unclean? And how can cleansing come out of that which renders those who touch it unclean? Meaning that it must be unclean. Think of the bathtub example at the beginning of the sermon. Countless examples have been put forth to answer this, but none, and I mean none that I have read, goes far enough. What is it that purifies us? Christ. But how did that come about? Through his death. That's right, through the cross of Jesus Christ, his death. 
The entire passage is dealing with touching a dead body. If his body was dead, then according to the law, touching his body would defile. But he had no human father. Sin did not transmit to him. Thus he was sinless. The sin he bore was for the sin of the people of the world. Every time that someone comes to Christ, it is through his death. Not his resurrection, not his ascension, it is through his death. That death defiles because sin was connected with it, but not his own sin. When we take the Lord's Supper, we remember his death until he comes again. When I tell someone about Christ and he receives that, I, in essence, sprinkle that person with Christ. In that, I am participating in the death of Christ. Thus, I am ceremonially unclean because of the sin which is transferred to Christ because of my witness. The person is also purified, but he remains unclean in reality until he is actually glorified in Christ. It appears that Paul had this rite of purification on his mind when he wrote his words found in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. There he wrote about the sufferings of the apostles for the sake of sharing the message of Christ something that those who share the gospel continue with to this day. Think of the water of purification when I read this. He said they were, the apostles, always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus may also be manifest in our body. For we who live are always delivered to death for Jesus' sake, that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our mortal flesh. So then death is working in us, but life in you. Does everybody see the picture? We carry about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Death brings uncleanliness, and yet we, meaning believers, are already clean because of Christ. But we carry this body of death in order to continue to bring life to others. So even though we are alive, death is working in us because it is working life in those who come to Christ. The clean person who did the sprinkling must have thought, I'm making this guy clean, but I'm making myself unclean in the process. Unless you understood the whole picture, you would say, what a jip. But in understanding that what he is doing is necessary for the life of the other, then it doesn't appear jippish at all, does it? It is Christ. What I'm saying is we're not glorified. He left us here. It's not jippish. We're helping them come alive because of what Christ did. It is Christ who cleanses us from all unrighteousness. But uncleanliness had to come from his dead body in order for that to come about. That is why there is no sprinkling with blood. That is accomplished in Christ's death. It is the death and the body of death which is dealt with here. It is that which defiles. If you remember from the previous sermon, I don't know if any of you remember this, but I made a point of saying it. It is the only sacrifice which is mentioned, which is burnt, and which includes the fact that the blood is burnt with the body. This is why the living water mixed with the death, meaning the ashes is used. It furthers the picture. Christ didn't die and stay dead. He rose to provide living waters but that can only be appropriated through his death, even though his dead body brought defilement under the law. One cannot get to the living water until he is first cleansed by the blood, even though the death associated with that blood defiles. 
And so that confusing but infinitely important message must be shared. Are you willing to carry about in your body the dying of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be manifest in you? That is the lesson of the red heifer and the sin water. Without Christ becoming sin, we could not become the righteousness of God in him. It is an amazing thing that God has done in Jesus Christ. And as I said last week or a week ago when we had this sermon, Solomon, it's tradition, it's not in the Bible, but they said he could not figure this out. How can everything, everything become unclean by this, and yet it's the only thing that can purify? It's a mystery. And the mystery is revealed when you understand the glory of God as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ and what he was willing to do for us. You know, I get out there and I work hard and I come home and I stink. That's the body of corruption. When I die, I'm going to be so disgusting in no time at all that, you know, if you leave a body out, what happens? Because I go into the Anna's dumpster every day to feed those birds. And what do I see? Billions of them. Maggots all over the place, right? They're everywhere and everything stinks in there except the very top thing that they just threw in there. Thank goodness. So I can still feed my birds. And in the summer, it's even worse and I can't feed them because it's so bad. That's what death is. And remember what it said. If you touch an unclean animal, you're only defiled till evening. An unclean animal, a swine, the worst thing in the world to the Jews, right? You touch a dead body, you're unclean for seven days and you have to go through a rite of purification. Because if you don't, you're cut off from the people of Israel. We are far worse than the unclean animals that they so abhor and say, oh, I'm not going to touch that. I'm holier than you. As the Lord says, such are smoke in my nostrils. We cannot come to God in the state that we are in. It is impossible without going through the cleansing of Jesus Christ. I'm animated right now because I'm angry. I'm angry at the sin that's in this world that people so flippantly dismiss. And what goes on in the world that we see in our prophecy update week to week, which is so vile and so vulgar, and these people just act like it's just okay. And it's not okay. You must come through Christ and you must yield yourself to him and receive the scattering that somebody was willing to sprinkle. Please come to Jesus Christ today and understand that he is the cure for the defect which is found in you and it will be proved when you die and you start getting maggots and swelling up and disgusting and putrid. And I, I mean to be graphic with this because this is what we are. This is who we are. And if you get, what is it, gangrene? It can happen while you're alive. We're so corrupt. Please understand that God has given us something far, far better. He has promised us glory where there is no corruption. As our text verse said today, we bear the corrupt, we will bear the incorruption. But it's only going to happen if you come through Christ. Please make it today. Our closing verse comes from Colossians 3. It's verses 1 through 4. If you then were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears, oh, good news, then you also will appear with him in glory. I believe this because it's the only message on this planet that makes any sense at all. I had dinner with my uncle last night. He's going up north, and we talked a little bit about theology. And I got to tell you, like most Garrett's, we have screwed up theology, okay? I gave him the answers. I'm not going to debate or argue with people, but they need to understand that this is the answer. Not all paths lead to heaven. 
Every, I told him, every single religion on this planet, except one, is self. I'm going to do this to appease God. I'm going to do this to make God happy. I'm going to perform this ritual. I'm going to something. This is the only religion on the planet, and I'm not talking about Catholicism. I'm talking about biblical Christianity. I believe the word of God that he has done everything necessary. I'm going to receive the scattering. Thank you, Jesus, for what you did. As it says, then you also will appear with him in glory. Next week is Numbers 21 through 13. Waters will come out of the rock. And all the people said, ooh and ah. It's entitled The Waters of Meribah. That'll be our 38th Numbers sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you're lost in the desert wandering aimlessly, but the Lord is there. He's carefully leading you to the land of promise. We're on our way there, and if you've called on Jesus, you're already there. You're just waiting for it to be realized. So follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. Okay? Does everybody appreciate what you heard today? I, I'm still, I'm literally, the first sermon and this sermon, I remember saying, I can't believe this. I, I'd read these passages a million times, and I had an idea what it was talking about. But get into the actual words in the Hebrew and understand that it says Ha-Adam, the Adam, and that's speaking of him in you and me. And everything flows out from there until comes Christ. He's not in Adam. He's a man, but he's not in Adam. He could do it. Thank you, Jesus. I got, this is a give me. I know I say that from time to time. This is a give me. Probably everybody is going to get one of these. Unless I know, when people ask a question in a congregation, a, a pastor, I'm the guy that sits in the congregation and goes, bleh, bleh, bleh. I never remember because my brain seizes up. I want so bad to know that I just stop. But you should be able to get this. I want you to name one of the major doctrines, just one, of the faith which is realized in today's passage. Just one major doctrine which is realized in today's passage. I sat down here, and in one minute, I came up with at least 12. One major doctrine. Come on. See, everybody's frozen. Uh, you're going to hate yourself when I read these. Nobody gets a Maserati. Uh, Free will. Yes. All-sufficient atonement of Jesus Christ. Christ's deity. Christ's humanity. Christ's resurrection. Christ's, I said it out loud. I even asked you, virgin birth. The return of Jesus Christ, because we remember his death until he comes. You can't have a return of Jesus Christ without a resurrection. Okay, and then the Trinity. It's implied in there because you have the Father, you have the Son, and you have the Holy Spirit. And they're all mentioned in one passage. And one more. One more. I'm going to give you a hint. If anybody can get it, then I will give you the Maserati for a week. It begins with O, and it ends with original sin. Anybody? Original sin. Linda gets it. She was the first to cry it out. Good job. <laughs> Come on, guys. Isn't it wonderful? Isn't it wonderful what Jesus did for us? I'm on fire right now. I just love our Lord. I just love him. The water of purification. He who touches the dead body of anyone shall be unclean seven days. This is what I mean. And he shall purify himself with the water on the third day. And on the seventh day, then he will be clean. But if he does not purify himself on the third day, and on the seventh day, he will not be clean, so to you I say. Whoever touches the body of anyone who has died and does not purify himself defiles the tabernacle of the Lord. That person shall be cut off from Israel, according to this word. He shall be unclean because of the water of purification was not sprinkled on him. His uncleanness is still on him like a defiling spot. 
This is the law when a man dies in a tent. All who come into the tent as the Lord relays, and all who are in the tent shall be unclean seven days. And every open vessel, so I mean, which has no cover fastened on it, is unclean. Whoever in the open field touches one who is slain by a sword, or who has died, or a bone of a man or a grave, shall be unclean seven days according to this word. And for an unclean person, they shall take some of the ashes, the ashes like soot, of the heifer burnt for purification from sin, and running water shall on them in a vessel be put. A clean person shall take hyssop and dip it in the water, sprinkle it on the tent, on all the vessels too, on the persons who are there, or on the one who touched a bone, the slain, the dead, or a grave, so shall he do. The clean person shall sprinkle the unclean on the third day, and on the seventh day, so I mean, and on the seventh day he shall purify himself, wash his clothes, and bathe in water, and at evening he shall be clean." But the man who is unclean and does not purify himself, that person shall be cut off from, according to this word, among the assembly, because he has defiled the sanctuary of the Lord. The water of purification has not been sprinkled on him. He is unclean. It shall be a perpetual statute for them. This is what I mean. He who sprinkles the water of purification shall wash his clothes, and he who touches the water of purification shall be until evening unclean. Whatever the unclean person touches shall be unclean, and the person who touches it shall be unclean until evening. At the sanctuary of the Lord, he shall not be seen. Lord God, we are even now in a wilderness, and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct our lives would be a mess. And so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock, our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand and may we take it into our lives daily. It apply and we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. I'd like you to know that, as I said, the waters of Meribah is our next sermon. That's what I say in that second to last refrain every single week. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock our souls to satisfy. There it is. Coming soon to a sermon near you. Heavenly Father, thank you. Thank you for the wonder of this passage. It is, it is simply amazing to think of what you have done in Christ, which is all pictured here, which is so confusing that people throughout the centuries and millennia have read this and had no idea what you were talking about. And yet it's right there in the word and it's all revealed in Jesus Christ Lord my heart is for Israel to be saved and to come to a saving knowledge of you they have rejected this water this right of purification now for 2,000 years they have rejected it they have turned their back on it and walked away from it and yet they've only harmed themselves and all of the other people in this world who have heard the same gospel message and have turned away from it all of them are facing the same eternal dilemma I'm so sorry to think on this, Lord. I know most people in this congregation are because we love the people of this world. We love your word and we see how the two can only be resolved through Jesus. So please, Lord, help eyes to be opened, hearts to be opened, and people to turn to the saving message of Jesus Christ and help us to be responsible to do the sprinkling, which leads to the scattering, which leads to the salvation. Help us in this, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.